0: In the Genesis chapter 6 today, I'm going to give you a grossly inadequate recap. I'm just going to admit that right off the bat, but a grossly inadequate recap. Uh, so so there, here's the outline that we've been tracking. Again, if you don't know what the book of Genesis is about, you're okay, you're in a safe place. This is what the book of Genesis is about. It's broken up into two major sections, four major events, four major people. Um, just fun facts here, you should have this memorized and seared in your brain by now. Uh, so we've gone already through creation. We've looked at all of that, the first of the four major events in the book of Genesis. We've looked at the forming of the earth, the filling of it with life, intelligent design, the Imago day, identity, gender, marriage, procreation, rest, all of these things. We've, we've covered all of those things. And then we have now gone through the fall, the second of the two major events. Uh, Tyler LaFoy uh, kicked that off. We kind of wrapped it up last week with sin's origin. Where did sin come from? What was the extent of sin? What was the deceit? What was the destruction? All of those things. We looked at all of that. So we've traveled through that. And then uh, last week at the end of the sermon, as we wrapped it up, there was a rebuking and a chastisement, which fell upon me. And I heard from several of you guys, why on earth did we skim so fast? through the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5. So I I felt your rebuke. I I hear your rebuke. But church, listen to me. We were on pace to being done at about 10 p.m. if I would have kept going. And so we just had to kind of speed it up a little bit to to get us through those. Um, And I wanted to give your community groups plenty to talk about. There was tons to talk about that. I mean, you've got the Nephilim. You've got polygamy for the first time. I hope your community groups chewed through all of that, Um, and so that was the reason. But let me do this. In fairness, and to tie us into chapter 6, let me give you a recap of the quick little sermonette. Um, And so we're going to take you back to the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5, where I just kind of blurted through that to the cluster that was humanity. Because I think it will set up where we're headed. So let's be reminded, as we wrapped up chapter 4 and chapter 5, of what... What happened with sin's fallout and the cluster that was humanity? So chapter 4 ended with Cain's lineage and his lineage was outlined. You guys will remember that. We just kind of blurted through it real fast. Um, Bottom line, here's what you need to know about the end of chapter 4 and Cain's lineage. It is like an episode of the Kardashians. I mean, it is just a royal mess going on. That's what the end of chapter 4 is. So if you ever get a Trivial Pursuit, you go, "What was Genesis chapter four about?" You can say, well, it "Was the Kardashians, uh, just a mess? It was a cluster. Sin is spreading like wildfire. That's what the end of chapter four was." And then the overarching theme of chapter five really could be summarized pretty quickly, and that's what we kind of blurted through where we ended. Chapter 4 was Cain's lineage was outlined, genealogies. Chapter 5 is Seth's lineage is outlined. You're going to see some of the same names there. It's different people, but you need to know this. This is, this is good. And Seth's lineage, when his is outlined, it's kind of like um, the movie Groundhog Day. You guys all remember Groundhog Day. He wakes up, and it's going to be a cold day. Rise and shine, it's going to be a cold day. It's always cold out there. Wakes up, rise and shine. Or or maybe to bring it into my era of movies, um, European Vacation. Big Ben. (laughs) They get stuck in the cul-de-sac, right? And they're going around the circle. Big Ben, Parliament. Big Ben, Parliament. This is what's going on in Cain's lineage. And here's what it sounds like. It sounds like this. All of chapter 5 of Genesis is, this person was born, they lived a few hundred years, they spit out a couple of kids, and then they died. That is it. That is it. That's all that's going on. You think I'm kidding with you? Alas, I am not. Let's go ahead and pop that on the screen. Here's Genesis Genesis chapter 5. Adam was created. He lived 930 years and then he died. Seth was born. He lived 912 years and then he died. Enosh was born, lived 905 years and then he, guess what it is? Died. Kenan was born. He lived 910 years, and then he died. Mahalalel was born. He lived 895 years. He died. Jared was born. He lived 962 years. We had to throw an American name in there. And then he died. Methuselah was born. He lived 969 years. He died. Lamech was born. He lived 777 years. That's a good number. He died. And then Noah was born. That is Genesis chapter 5. So for all y'all that sent me texts and chastised me, there you go. That is the chapter. They were born, they did some stuff, they had some kids, and then they they died. That's the point. And I also think it's not just the point. I think that's the point. I think we're to read that and to go, okay, life is something about being born, um, living, maybe spitting out a few kids, and then dying. This is kind of what's going on. Why would I say that? Why would I say this is the point? Well, here's why I'd say that. Because every generation thinks that it's a pretty big deal, doesn't it? Every generation in history thinks it's a pretty big deal. Let me recap some of these. We invented the car. Okay. Well, then you died. Well, we landed on the moon. And then what? We died. Well, we birthed rock and roll and hair bands, or lack thereof. Uh, or the internet, or iCarly, or whatever. We did this, and then we died. Okay? Every generation thinks it's a big deal, but no generation is really a big deal. There is no generation that's a big deal. I think that's the point of Genesis chapter 5. You look at it and you go, these people lived hundreds of years, and then they died. There's nothing going on there. Absolutely nothing has changed all the way back from Genesis chapter 5. You're born, you do some stuff, not even 900 years worth anymore. You spit out some kids, maybe, and then you die. So, lest we say things like this, Oh, true, that's not true. I've, I've done so much. I, I have learned to ride a bicycle. Well, brother, they, they rode dinosaurs. <laughs> it's trying to the trump card, right? Well, I, I built my own house. Well, they invented fire and tools and architecture. Well, I, I ran a marathon. They lived 900 years, okay? But I'm kind of a big deal. No, you're not. You are not a big deal. I am not a big deal, unless you still sit there and go, Well, I'm kind of a big deal. Somebody next to you needs to look at you and go, You ain't a big deal. So let's do that now. Turn to somebody and go, You're not that big a deal. In a very loving Christian way, of course. (laughs) In in, in Christian encouragement. We're not that big a deal. Methuselah. He lived 969 years. At that point, you probably just want to be done, right? 969 years. And what does God tell us about his 969 years in the whole Bible? You ready for it? He had kids and he died. <laughs> That's it, right? There's only one exception. One exception. Just one. And this is the key to Genesis chapter 5. The one exception was Enoch. Enoch, it says this. He was born. He lived He walked with God, and then he was not. One of the only two people in the Bible who doesn't die. The other one being Elijah. Elijah caught fire from heaven, which is why we sing, Swing low, sweet chariots, right? That's where the song comes from. So here's the deal. This is the only thing that changed. Enoch was born. It's noted about him that he walked with God, and then he was not. And that's the golden nugget. The golden nugget of Genesis chapter 5 is... ...the only thing that matters in life is... ...did you walk with God? It's the only thing notable. It's the only thing God writes in His history book. There's no doubt these people did some phenomenal things. They had to. I mean, they lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. But Adam and Eve were the first to walk with God. They did it forced because they were born to do so. Then humanity goes absolutely haywire does what they please in their own eyes, and then Enoch walks with God, he's the second one. And so everything else, anything else in life is just Groundhog Day. Anything else in life is just Big Ben, Parliament. Anything else is just circular. The only thing that matters is, did you walk with God? So, have you ever asked that question? Have you ever asked the question, why? Well, Troy or my spouse or whatever. What is my purpose in life? Have you ever asked that? Have you ever wondered what am I here for? Like how do I leave a lasting legacy? What do I do? What can I do that makes God smile at me? The only thing you can do is walk with Him. That's the only thing He goes, Yes, I'll write that down in my history book. For all time. That he walked with me. And I think of that old song by Merle Haggard. He walked with me and he talked. That's why I don't sing. That's why these guys sing. A long life's narrow away. Hmm. Good. So the question is, not do you believe in God. That's not the question in the scriptures. The question is not do you believe in God. Do you know God? The question is, does God know you? Do you walk with Him? Do, do, you, do, you, do you pray? Do you study? Do you, do you hop in your car and drive down the road and, and contemplate the mountains or the, or the, the sun or the, the, the squirrels or the whatever? Do you, is it a constant conversation? Does your life look like that? And that's what it looks like to walk with Him. And that's what He cares about. We do all kind of things to extend our lives, don't we? All kind of things. We diet-ish Maybe not at all. We, if diet consists of Krispy Kreme donuts, Troy, I'm in, right? We run, we we work out, we whatever. We do anything we can do to just kind of extend our life a little bit further. I wake up every morning and take my 10 milligrams of lisinopril so that I don't stroke out right here in front of all of y'all. We do all kind of things to just extend the life. We listen to TED Talks. We have health checkups. We do whatever. But here's the deal. A long life means absolutely nothing nothing to god you can extend your life to 969 years and it be just like methuselah born lived a long time shot out a kid died enosh or enoch oddly enough lived the youngest of all of them but was the only one whose life was noted that mattered it's fascinating And that's the key to Genesis chapter 5. So fun fact, and then we'll move on. Fun fact is this. We just covered 1,656 years. Uh, there's 1,656 years from the birth of Adam all the way to Noah. And so we've just covered a whole lot of ground. Uh, so if, if people ask, well, what do you do in church today? You can, we, you can say, we covered 1,656 years of history, and you would be correct. So this is what's going on in this. This far surpasses everything that was done in the New Testament as far as length goes. And so the point of this is: there's two people that walk with God. One forced walked willingly, and then the other uh, was forced to do so. And this is what's notable: sin abounds at this point, which is crucial to hold on to to move into chapter six. Sin repulses the Father all the way to the point of grief. And the only person who was not doing what was right in his own eyes was Enoch, and he gets noted. Sin's not a joke. That's what the fall should have taught us, that sin's not a wink and nod. Everything that Tyler covered and that we covered in chapters 4 and 5 should, should get us to go that God doesn't look at sin and go, don't do that, kind of like I spanked Macy. Now, the boys, they flat get it. Well, they don't get any more because they're bigger than me and they wear me out, right? But when Macy Lane was growing up, you know, she'd do something wrong or whatever and it's like... Doo. No, or the grounding. I'm going to ground you for four years and four seconds. Right? You just kind of more. I think a lot of times we think God thinks of sin kind of that way. We think that He looks at sin and goes, "Don't you do that?" And then hands us a cookie. It's not a joke to Him, and that's what we should have learned through the fall. And this moves us into chapter six. So we went from a divided cluster of humanity, chapter 4 and chapter 5, moved into chapter 6. Here we are now with a catastrophic decision as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 17 is perhaps the most violent passage in all of Scripture. And you may instantly go, well, what about the cross? The cross was gruesome, but in my opinion, and you can have a different opinion, that's fine... This passage is the most violent of all passages of Scripture. Let's look at it together. Because of sin, this catastrophic decision was made. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. Check this out. For I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. There's our third walk with God, if you're keeping tally. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. If you have triplets, there you go. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sign, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their own way on the earth. And God said to Noah, here it is, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I'll destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. If you've ever wondered what that is like, it's 500 feet long, so almost two football fields long. It's 90 feet wide, so almost two football fields wide. And then 60 feet high. Dear friend, I don't know what kind of boat you got. This one's bigger than yours. This is the Trump of all Trump boats. Okay, This is a big boat. And it's got a lid on it. So here we go, verse 16. And so make a roof of the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door inside the ark in its side. Make it uh, with lower, second, and third decks. And for behold, I will bring a flood on the waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on on earth shall die. And with that, church, we have just moved in to the third major event in the book of Genesis. Isn't this fun to travel through Scripture? You just get it. It's just so cool. So now we're at the third major event. We've made it to the flood, and this is the historical account of the flood. I'm going to give you a heads up. This is not your typical sermon on the flood. We're not going to talk about animals. We're not going to talk about what they did with all of the manure and whatever. We're not going to talk about... ...what the boat looked like. We're not going to stand up and sing the song... ...the Lord told Noah there's going to be a Floody Floody... ...and sing about the Arky Arky. How many of you all remember this song? Yes, Emma, you got this. Uh, we're not going to sing the song about the gopher Woody Woody... ...and all this kind of stuff. This is not. We're not going to do that because I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's the point at all. And I think sermons that spend a lot of time on that... ...really waste the point... ...of what's going on in the text. So we're just going to kind of dive straight into the text. I think what's going on in this passage... ...is if all of Scripture is the point is to God... ...then the point of this passage is to show us something about God. Not about wood. Not about birds and dinosaurs and where do the dinosaurs... ...that's that's not the point. The point of all this is... ...what is God doing and who is He? And so I think there's three things we can see. Three things, at least three things... This is going to be maybe systematic theology in nature. So all of the people who come to the systematic theology class uh, on Wednesday nights, this is going to kind of be... A, you can take a nap today because this coincides with where we're at in our study of the theology of who God is. But number one, I think this. I think we can learn from this text a lesson about God and grief. So a lesson on God's grief We saw grief all the way throughout that passage. That God was grieving, He regretted, He hated, He was upset, He wished He never would have, He all of these things. And that's that's a big thing to contemplate about God, right? I mean, when you lay your head at the bed at at night, do you lay down and and think about God's goodness? (laughs) Or do you lay down your, your head and go, well, hold on a second, how can God grieve? And I think... That's one of the things we can learn through this text. So it looks something like this. How is it even possible for a sovereign God to regret anything? You ever ask that question? It sounds a lot more like this. Well, if he's sovereign, and if he knew all these things were going to happen, and he let it happen anyway, then why would he grieve the decision that he's made? You ever pondered that? So, I think this text can kind of get us about this. We hear about regret and sorrow, and a lot of times we equate it with shock. And in doing so, I think we kind of mess up the whole understanding of how God can truly grieve. In other words, for us, when we're shocked about something, whoa, that caught me off guard, is usually when we feel most sorrow, right? You pop on Facebook, I don't know whose phone does that, but. You're on Facebook. Boom. You're scrolling through. And all of a sudden you run past and you find out that a classmate or something like that has passed away. You didn't know about it. And so the shock catches you off guard. You go, whoa. And then you go, oh, I feel that. I I hurt with that. And I think a lot of times we equate shock with sorrow. But that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. With God... God can regret something. He can have grief with something He not only foreknew, but that He also brought about. He can grieve that. And the reason I would say that is because, number one, let's just face it, well, He's God. And as God, He's got the ultimate trump card of all trump cards. He can do whatever He wants to do. That's just kind of, He's God, period, number one. So how does He grieve? Well, He can grieve because He... Decides in and of the counsel of his own sovereign will to grieve. Number one, but number two, we do this as well. We grieve things that we know will come about. If we think about it for just a second, um, Kobe, our, our oldest, uh, I'd like to congratulate him on learning how to ride a bicycle. He, he my son, knows how to ride a bicycle. Um, good job, Kobe. You're, you're a great bicycle rider. Um, the story ahead of that is that teaching Kobe how to ride a bicycle was straight-up H-E-double hockey sticks. <laughs> right. And Kobe, as he, as he was growing up, I was like, hey, you know, to be a man, you've got to learn how to ride a bicycle. And so those just really only three things in life I wanted him to accomplish. Number one was uh, clean himself up after he used the bathroom. Um, Number two, uh, eat his food. And then number three, ride a bicycle. And somehow in my brain, that equates a man. Uh, But anyway, so I decided, okay, we're going to teach Kobe how to ride this bicycle. I knew he wasn't ready, but I was, it was my firstborn. And with firstborns, we just do crazy stuff, right? Like the thirdborns, we're like, oh, they'll figure out riding the bike on their own. They're 17 years old. And like, ah, they'll figure it out. Kobe is three months old. And I'm like, let's learn how to ride this bike. Let's go. We got to do this. We got to. So he's really young, and I knew it was going to end bad. I knew it. Julie Beth, my Holy Spirit, even told me, Troy, this is going to end bad. What You are torturing yourself and your son. And so, lo and behold, we get a bicycle, have the training wheels on it, bring it home, and go, we don't need no stinking training wheels. We're Nicholsons, right? So we take the training wheels off and and put him on this bicycle and then shove him down the road. I knew that that was going to end bad, and shockingly, it ended bad, right? So the first time I let him go, he's teeter tottering the whole thing, and then he comes over the top, and then boom. Anybody else's parents do this to you? I'm the only one that is counseling. Okay. Uh, there'll be a counseling session afterwards, really for me, I guess. Uh, but anyways, so he falls, and then he screams, and all this kind of stuff. I knew that it was coming. I saw it. Not only did I see it, I was the one that put him on the bike and shoved him down. But nonetheless, when Kobe stands up and he's got a bloody knee, I look at it and I go, What a punk dad, number one. And then number two, I felt sorrow. You can't tell me I didn't really feel grief. I did. I regretted that I put him on the bicycle... ...even though I was the one that put him on the bicycle. So lest you're in this room going, I've got God in a quandary. How can he regret something that he decided to do? We do the same thing, don't we? It's the same thing. And so in this scenario, this is what happens in this text... And so we learn this lesson about God's grief. God can truly grieve, and what brings Him grief is sin. It's sin. What brings Him joy? That we walk with Him. What brings Him grief is when we miss the mark and choose to willfully sin. So I think that's lesson number one. Lesson number two, I think there's a lesson on God's justice in this as well. God's justice would be something like this. Well, I thought God was a God of love. And how can God be loving if he does something so hateful and vile as this passage? I mean, Troy, did you read that? He was going to blot out all of mankind. And that sounds pretty hateful, and we get tripped up with that. After all, how wicked does someone really have to be for their own father to want to destroy them? And to do so by drowning them. Like, how bad does that person have to be? And I can get this. From a human perspective, that's pretty hard to grasp. John, you probably can't fathom killing your kids, or maybe you can. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Here's the thing. I know me. I know how jacked up I was and still am. And I think of all the things that I did. I can't tell you how many times I failed my parents. I can't tell you how many times I failed my parents... Not only that they knew about it, much less all the ways I failed them that they didn't even know about. I I can't wrap my brain around how many times that I failed them. Nonetheless, every time, every stinking time, they were willing to bring me back in, hug me, love on me, cook me a meal, and let me sleep in their bed. Well, not their bed, because that would be weird. But let me sleep in my bed that they let me borrow. I can't tell you how many times they graciously loved me and forgave me. And so it is kind of hard to wrap our brains around. How could a just and loving God, a God who is love, do something so wicked-ish in our brains, not wicked, but in our brains, hateful and and spiteful? How How does that even fit? But again, from a divine perspective, I don't think it's that hard to wrap our brains around. If we'll just think for just a second. Remember... When we think about God's justice, God will always do what is right. He'll always do what is good. And so we're trying to figure out, okay, how does this fit? Well, remember, there's only one person who's ever walked with God willfully up to this point. Enoch. Again, Adam did, but he didn't do it willfully. He was forced to do it. He was just born into walking with God. So at this point, we go, how could a just God, and the text reminds us, hold on a second... There's only one person walking with Him. The rest of humanity is just an absolute cluster. And then number two, the Scripture tells us that in the passage that public sin abounds. If you look at all the words in that text, you'll see things like this. The earth was corrupt. The earth was filled with violence. That sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? It was full of it. It was anything, everything publicly was just godless. And so lest we go, God's unjust... Let's remember, the world was violent, corrupt, and then that doesn't even account for the private sins. Notice what the text said about private sins. They abounded even more. Every thought of man's heart was evil. And so just like violence and corruption sounds a lot like the world we live in today, as I think about every thought of man's heart was evil, that sounds a lot like this guy. Sounds a lot like me. So before we look at God and go, God, you are unjust if you do anything that doesn't ring true with our definition of love, let's first look in the mirror and go, hold on a second. Now, what is reality and what is perspective? God's perfectly just in doing all of this stuff. And this is where usually people start scrambling for all the big buts in the Bible. But, 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 but. And here's some of the buts that occur. But why didn't he give them more time? Well, church, he gave them 1,656 years to figure this out. That's a lot of time. But but why didn't he give them a second chance? If we ask that question, you've got to ask the question, have you not been listening to anything in the book of Genesis up to this point? He's given tons of chances over and over and over and over. But, 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 But isn't it just... For a holy God to forgive... Well, if we're going to define holiness and justice... What is just in the sight of holiness... Is that God burns the whole barn down and walks away. That's what's just. I would argue what's unjust for a holy God to do is to forgive anyone. And that's what's so amazing about grace. We should look at this passage and go... Not, how dare a holy, loving God bring wrath on who He chooses to bring it on. We should look at it and go, how on earth does that holy God grant me forgiveness and mercy and grace because I am just as wicked as all those people, if not more. You see the gospel in Genesis? It's so good. It's so rich. It's so true. And that's why it's called grace. And so... But, but Troy, I still, I don't want to think about drowning animals as fair. I don't want to think about drowning babies as fair. I don't want to think about drowning humans as fair. And we get caught up in this fair game. So let me say something a tad bit snarky. And then maybe the second one cynical. I feel like if I just go ahead and say out front it's a tad bit snarky, it makes it a little less snarky. So a tad bit snarky. Number one, if you're a creator God, you can do whatever you want to do with your creation and it be perfectly just. If you build the sandcastle, you can kick it down all day long. (laughs) If I build the sandcastle, you better not step on my mermaid, okay? Don't step on my mermaid. But if you build the sandcastle, you can do whatever you want to do with it and you're perfectly just. But now let's say something a little sensitive. Sensitive, I would say it this way. Of course we say that that's not fair. Of course we would say that. And the reason we do that is because we are all people with SJS syndrome. Selective justice syndrome. We've all got it, don't we? Selective justice syndrome is something like this. If someone breaks into my house, tortures my kids spits on me, wrecks the place, and walks beside me all day long telling everyone how terrible I am, do I want mercy for them or do I want justice? What do you want? You can say it out loud. It's not a trick question. You want justice, right? However, if we're the one who gets caught breaking in, stealing, being the offender, then what do we want? We want mercy. Yeah, we want grace. We have this selective justice. And so again, what would be fair in this situation is for God to proverbially take His ball and just head on home that would be perfectly just and right and fair and good. And I think we should learn that about God. That's a healthy perspective to have about God. Anything He does is right and good and just. And I feel it, I feel it. There's some people in this room going, but, 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 but. Put your butts at the door. If you don't understand God's wrath or have a category for God's wrath, then you do not understand God's holiness. If you understand that God's holy and that anything is an offense against Him and therefore a right for Him to bring down His righteous wrath, then you don't understand God. So check that. Be careful about that. And I say that. We need to learn that about God's justice. He is just and good by what He does. Not our definition of what He should or should not do. That's who God is. Which leads to the final lesson and a lesson on God's mercy. It's funny how the Bible always spins a curveball. And here's God's mercy. God's mercy would look something like this. Well then, so why did God choose Noah and his family to survive the flood? Let's wrap it up today. A gracious remnant. Chapter 6, verse 18 through chapter 7, 24. Now, we're not going to read all of this because we don't have time for it. I'd love for your community groups and you to go study this as you go home. But let's look at this, verse 18. In light of one person walking with God, chapter 5. In light of chapter 6, all the sin that abounds, we get to Noah, verse 18. "...I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of the flesh, you shall bring two of every sort to keep in the ark, to keep them alive with you. They shall be male, and they shall be female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of the creeping things on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in for you, and you shall keep them alive." Only one type animal was not mentioned in this passage. Did anybody catch it? Things that swim. Things in the water. So if you've ever wondered, was everything destroyed? Like did the fish and the whales and all that kind of stuff? Interestingly, nowhere in the Bible does it say anything that swam was destroyed. So just fun fact again, little curveball there. Also take with you every food that's eaten, store it up. It shall serve as food for you. Verse 22, and Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. That skips us all the way over to verse 16 of chapter uh, 7. And those that entered, male and female, all the flesh that went in as God commanded, the Lord shut them in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The water increased, bore up the ark. It rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed. And increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters. There was no motorboat behind it. Nobody was skiing. Nobody was wakeboarding. Nothing like that. And the waters prevailed mightily so that on all the earth, even the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The water prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming, flying creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So out of this passage again, a lesson on God's justice. And now a lesson on God's mercy. So again, the question here will be, why did God choose Noah and his family to survive the flood? Church, this is pretty incredible here. I'll give you three options. Option A, why did he choose Noah? Option A, because he knew Noah was perfectly righteous and trustworthy. He looked and he was like, now this guy Noah, I think he, I think he could walk with me. I think he's going to be perfectly righteous and trustworthy. I'm going to say no to that one. Here's why. This dude was a goofball just like the rest of us goofballs. Does anybody know the rest of the story of Noah? Well, let me give you a heads up. In two chapters away, this brother is going to get off the ark, plant a vineyard, whip out a batch of wine, and be absolutely hammered and naked laying on the ground. Get ready for it, all right? That's coming. Maybe that'll land on Easter. Now, that'd be a fun Easter message. <laughs> Welcome to Safe Haven Church. There's a naked guy. He's drunk. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago, right? <laughs> so God didn't look and go, "No, this guy's got it figured out. God looked and he goes, this guy's about to get hammered. So I don't think that he looked at him and that's the reason that he chose him. Option B, and I think this is more reasonable biblically. Option B, he chose Moses. I mean, to Moses. <laughs> Moses too chose Noah because he's sovereign and he's constantly drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. That's what mercy is. That's why he chose him. He's sovereign. And he said, this is who I'm going to set my affection on. And he's a messed up, jacked up dude. And I'm going to draw a straight line with this messed up guy so that when the job gets done, I know he's not going to get the glory. And the Lord gets the glory. That's why He does everything that He does. He does everything for His own righteous glory. Where do you see that, Troy? Well, I think at least two places. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, it said this, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Literally, that word there is the first time the word grace is ever used in the Bible. That is the Hebrew word for grace. An actual literal rendering of this would be, But Noah was blessed with grace... ...in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was not the initiator of grace. He was just the recipient of grace. That's why it's called grace. That's why it's called mercy. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 18. I think it's another place we can see this... ...where God says, I will establish my covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you. Who is the initiator of that? God. God's the initiator. I will do this. I will be the impetus behind why you become righteous. I will do this. So the point of the flood is not, why did God destroy the earth? The point of the flood is, why did God save Noah? And why did God save you? Why did He do it? And at the end of this text... All you can do is go, mercy and grace. And then who gets the glory? Us? No. He gets all the glory. And so the point of the flood as we see this is this grand, humbling, life-altering truth. It's this awe-inspiring, celebrating truth. Why are you pursuing God? Why are you he- Why are you even here? Did you just wake up and go, all right, today I'm going to eat a Pop-Tart and I'm headed to Safe Haven Church because I'm a good person. Woo-hoo, boom. You may hate Pop-Tarts. Maybe you ate oatmeal. Maybe you ate an apple. I don't know. You're on a diet. Oh, whatever. It's, did you do that or... Is the only reason you're pursuing anything of righteousness is because the Father has set His affection and love and stirred up your heart, and you responded. And you don't get the praise for it; He gets the praise for it because you're sitting here going, "I'm worse than Noah. (laughs) He was hammered and drunk one time. I've been that way sixty times. he was a whatever. I'm worse than him." And do we go, thank you God, that's what Genesis chapter 6 should make us do. Why God? Why me? Because He set His love on you. And this is a gracious, loving, patient invitation. If you're sitting in this room going, but I have not responded positively to the Lord, I've not embraced him. I've rejected him. Here's what I would say to you. He has you here today to hear the loving call that today can be the day of salvation. How much more loving is that? How much more loving can he be? He's here to embrace you today. And God indeed saves those who walk with him, which is the point of the text. It's the gospel in Genesis. So, welcome to Safe Haven Church, where we readily admit that we're all worse than Noah. (laughs) Hey, hey, Safe Haven! This is who we are. And if you're a guest with us, I want to tell you that. I I want you to hear that. We are all worse than Noah. Let me take it a step further. If you're a guest, here's what you need to hear. We at Safe Haven are worse than you are. That's just true, okay? We are gross sinners, our only hope is clinging to the past that we've received from the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's our only hope to get out of the ark alive. That's our hope. And we want you to hear that today. So when anything good, rightful, worshipful happens, God gets the glory. And then I'll give you option C as the band comes back up. Option C would be this, and I do think this is a curveball, uh, because His gracious remnant would continue to unravel His most gracious gift. That's also why I chose Noah. He chose Noah because he's continuing the unfolding story of the coming Christ, which would be ultimately through Noah's lineage, Christ himself. So, the end of this passage is simply this. There's a true and better Noah coming, and Noah was the forerunner to him. There's a true and better Noah who walked with God and will never be unrighteous, and his name is Christ. There's a true and better Noah who's coming who would provide a way of safety way bigger than a gopher wood arky arky. But through the shed blood of the cross. There's a true and better Noah who died and rose again conquering death's curse and handing out life to those who would willingly walk with him. See how that all tied right back together? Fun passage. The word of... The Lord for the people of the Lord. Let's pray together. Genesis chapter 6 and 7. That's a lot, Lord. God, I pray today as we've examined this passage, as we've looked at it, a couple of things. Number one, I do pray that we've learned about you. That we've learned a lesson. That you're God. That you're just. That you're merciful. That you can grieve. That all of those things are simultaneously true. And none of that affects your sovereign grace. None of that affects your sovereign rule. None of it. There is no but that we can say that confounds you. Where you're like, oh, I didn't think about that. (laughs) Thank you that you are providentially... And exponentially, above all things, that brings us comfort as finite beings. And then, Lord, too, we do thank you for the text. Thank you for Noah. Thank you for all that we can learn through this man and and how we so identify with this guy. Thank you that any of us are simply saved because of your gracious love and patience with us. God, I think we all readily admit we should have been drowned in the flood. But because you are so loving, you have us here today to hear the gospel. And so that's number three. God, I pray today that anything that was of gospel benefit sits in our hearts and grows like a tree. And we are more enamored by Jesus than ever before because of his ultimate saving work on our behalf that saves us from way more then a lot of rain coming down.